Hello and welcome to Somewhere to Believe in, a new podcast from the people who bring you Greenbelt Festival. I'm Paul and I'm the creative director of Greenbelt Festival. I'm one of your hosts for this podcast. Hello, I'm Catherine and I'm your other host for Somewhere to Believe in and the programme manager at Greenbelt. If you love very small talk and huge ideas, then this podcast is for you. Hi, Catherine. So here we are again, episode six. That's right. Six of eight. And I'm not going to do any maths this time. (laughs) So in this episode, we're going to be talking to Ruth Hunt, who was the CEO and the leader of uh, Stonewall, the charity, LGBT charity for a long time and came to speak at Greenbelt in 2015. We had a great chat with her, didn't we, Catherine? We did. You know what, Paul? I feel like we're kind of assembling an X-Men type super group of people that could solve all the things that are happening in the world through this podcast. That is a really good analogy. I hadn't realised what we were doing, but that is exactly what we're doing. I haven't really seen X-Men, so we should probably stop this conversation because I've got no more to add to it. (laughs) But I get the analogy and I think you're right. We are assembling like the elders, you know, like... um, Jimmy Carter, Mary Robinson, Nelson Mandela founded the Elders, you know, like that group, but we're assembling the next generation. The next generation of Elders, I like that. Yeah, what would they be, the the not-so-Elders or the 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 youngers? youngers? We've been on sale now for the festival for a couple of weeks and we're really encouraged. You know, lots of people are getting their passes for the day and we're enjoying putting the finishing touches together for the programme. By the time you listen to this podcast, we'll have released more detail around the schedule and the lineup. We hope it's exciting you. People seem to be excited on social media. It seems to be coming together, doesn't it? Yeah, I feel like this festival is opening a bit of a can of worms, though, which is kind of showing the glorious diversity of Greenbelt because we had an idea of what we were going to do and then lots of people get in touch with us because there's lots of different and weird and wonderful things that happen at Greenbelt. And they're like, oh, can we do this thing that we normally do at Greenbelt? Can we do this thing that we normally do at Greenbelt? And then it ends up becoming like a massive thing. Wonderful, but massive. (laughs) It's happening, isn't it? It's happening. And, you know, we got you back off furlough, didn't we, Catherine? Only just a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, in order to help us just put the finishing touches to and deliver on the festival plan. (laughs) You know, and our mantra was keep it simple, don't be too yeah. ambitious, let's make it manageable, and then whoosh, the Greenbelt thing starts to happen. The Greenbelt way. <laughs> <laughs> but already it's really bulging at the seams, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Of course, you can keep on letting us know what you're thinking and what you're getting excited about on our social media channels. We are at Greenbelt on Twitter and at Greenbelt Festival on Facebook and Instagram. And we'd love to know what you think. And if you want to drop us comments about this podcast, we have an email address, stbi at greenbelt.org.uk. We had a few comments in about the podcast, which has been nice. Someone wrote in saying, you know, are you going to actually speak to any artists? Good question. Yeah, we're definitely going to speak to some artists. I think our last one in this series is going to be a musician and then hopefully a lot more in the next series. Is there a next series? I haven't been contracted for a next series. I know we haven't got the contract sorted out. We'll have to speak to your agent. Who are you working with these days? That would be my mum. Your mum. (laughs) Okay. We did get another little bit of interesting feedback and there's a bit of a theme going on here where parents of staff members are letting us know what they think. What what did we hear, Catherine? We didn't get another Antichrist comment, did we, Paul? Not this week. You must have been behaving this week then, Paul. We had a bit of feedback from the parent of one of our colleagues. I don't know whether we should name him, but considering there's only one of the male employee, everybody will probably know who that is. Yeah. Derek. <laughs> uh, so... <laughs> So Derek's mom gave us some feedback that there's a bit too much talking. There's a bit too much of me and you, Paul. Yeah, I mean, she's right. Ordinarily, our roles would involve us getting out of the way because that's what we do is we put in the legwork, book the programme, and then we get out of the way. But this is a little bit different. So we're trying to be Greenbelt. <laughs> Catherine and I are Greenbelt on this podcast. Oh, no, that's too much responsibility for me. It's weighing really heavily. But yeah, we, you know, it's really weird. Uh, We don't really like hearing the sound of our own voices, but go with us. Go with us. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get there. Oh, yeah. The other thing, 
Derek, you know, not mentioning any names. <laughs> the only comment that he gave uh, to us as a form of encouragement to his colleagues in our podcast efforts for last week's episode, where we talked to Abdurrahman Malik, is he just said, beard envy. I understand that. I can empathise with that. As, a, as not a man with not a beard, I can empathise with that. I was looking for more from Derek, but, you know, deep down, I do understand where that's coming from. Anyway, Derek's mum, we're going to get out of the way. So coming up now, we've got Ruth Hunt. Ruth Hunt used to be the CEO of Stonewall and now has her own organisation called Deeds and Words with her partner Caroline. And she's also just recently become Baroness Ruth Hunt of Bethnal Green. So here we go. So Ruth, thank you for joining us. Where where are we speaking to you today? I'm in Bethnal Green in my in my flat with my partner. We've been here all through lockdown and we're business partners as well as life partners. So it's been an interesting 12 weeks in a small confined space <laughs> in central London. <laughs> We've done all right. We're all right. That's that's good. I've been um I've been in lockdown by myself. Uh, and I've really enjoyed it. Well, I'm an introvert, so so it's only in the last week where I've started saying, "Gosh, it's very annoying working around our kitchen table," and surely we should be able to work in different ways. And my partner Karen, I was like, "Do you think most people got to that point after about two weeks?" We've we've en- we've really enjoyed the change of pace and yeah. the, the slower down and not hurtling between meetings, but the constant screen time is is something else. I think. Have you found that you've started to look after yourself a, a bit better because? I found that I've started to cook for myself better because I've had time to think about it and made sure that I'm doing exercise and getting enough sleep and all that kind of stuff. I've certainly, Susie Ruffles says this really good thing that she feels like she's slept enough for the first time since year 10. And I do kind of have a sense of that. Like the first time since my GCSEs, I kind of caught up on sleep. But my partner's mum and dad died just before lockdown. So we were... um, we were in a very frenetic space of both trying to keep the business going and life going. And I got into the House of Lords and her mum and dad died. And it was so we almost, we were due a break, you know, interventionist God time. So I think we've we've slowed down and healed. But we used to cycle 20 kilometres every day in between places. So, you know, you'd go from meeting to meeting to meeting. So we felt quite sedentary, actually. We've not done too badly, but it's it's not quite the same frenetic physical pace we're used to. And Ruth, can I ask you a little bit about the, the Baroness, the Baroness bit, the Baroness of Bethnal Green, which I must admit, if I was going to be a Baroness, which I don't think I can be, but, Beth, you know, the Bethnal Green, the alliteration, everything about that sounds great. But what does it what does it actually mean? What do you have to do? Being, being a, a peer in the House of Lords means that you uh, scrutinise government plans. And so there's, there's many ways of being a peer. You, lots of people become peers because they used to be MPs for their party. So they've got a wisdom that they've accumulated over you know, years of being an MP and now they're kind of a wise sage head. And I'm something called a crossbench peer, which means I don't have any political affiliation, but I have certain expertise on things. So, so that's the kind of rationale behind it. But the, but the peers are, are an interesting bunch in that there is a significant number of hugely interesting expert people with very deep expertise in their field um, who also have very full day jobs. So, you know, I've got a day job, but so getting the balance right between between how much you do for the Lords and how much you kind of do your day job is, is, is an interesting one. But I, t- I take it, it's a public duty for me. So I, t- I take that very seriously. And I'm very young for the House of Lords. So I'm, I'm only 40, which, which is a sort of slightly different perspective. And I'm at a different stage of life. You know, if I don't work, I can't pay the mortgage, whereas there's a kind of different thing going on. And Bethnal Green, because this is where I live, but it's where my church is, it's where my community is, and it's where, if I were to advocate in the House of Lords, it would be for Bethnal Green. I was part of Theresa May's resignation honours list, and it came as a big surprise. Actually, I didn't, I didn't think it was, it was. Some, I, I thought it was for older people. To be honest, I didn't think I'd done enough to do it. And it's expected that I will certainly be very, very present around anything to do with inclusion and equalities. But actually, being part of the bigger stuff is quite important. So you understand what to do. So when my moment comes for Gender Recognition Act Law Reform, 
reform, I'd better have learned what I needed to learn during the agricultural bill because it's not the time for me to be learning what the second stage is. So there's there's kind of different levels of engagement that you kind of do depending on, on what you're capable of. And you mentioned that you're making all that work around a day job. You're now running Deeds and Words along with your partner. Mm. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about the, the work that you're doing there. Well, Caroline has has done this work for three decades, and I met her at Stonewall in 2008 when we were trying to do some really interesting cultural and organisational change then. And she worked very close with me when I took over as CEO, when I did quite a significant shift at Stonewall, what could be loosely described as a move from assimilation to a much more inclusive organisation. And she did a lot of culture change. And then we fell for each other, uh, which is incredibly inconvenient in a small charity. So she, she... went off and, and ran around her own thing and, and I really miss working with her really really missed working with her so so when I'd done my time at Stonewall I certainly didn't want to run another charity or, or get into another job like that and we really love working together so we do a lot of work with um, what I describe as quite complex public sector bodies who have very driven by purpose. So, you know, we do a lot of work with the Bank of England, um, with the Bar Council, working with barristers and helping them think about what's their bigger social purpose and lots of bits in government and things like that. And we do work with charities like Liberty and Roundhouse. So, so really we're interested in helping people find their sense of purpose, which which you can easily put a Christian lens on that. But, but my partner is assiduously atheist, but but we come to the same moral position that that if you have purpose and a, and a greater sense of what you're doing and why you're doing it, you can achieve wonderful things. So we specialise in delivering lots of very intense work to large groups of people in small confined spaces. So that's that's been slightly screwed by uh, <laughs> by COVID, but we've we've managed to adapt it all online. So it's it's been quite considerable adapting and quite heartbreaking in a way because we're not trainers. You know, we don't like this transmit and receive. We we like conversation, and the art of conversation is not enabled through platforms. And we've got a sneaky suspicion that that certainly Microsoft Teams, WebEx and all those pick up male voices faster than they pick up female voices. So when you're speaking and if a lot of people try and jump in, the male voice will always, the the women's voices will get turned down Um, and that's built into the tech. You know, so there's something that we have to constantly counteract when we're trying to do this stuff. That, That can't be an accident, right? Design, you see, it's, it's 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 how things are designed. It's like the the hand sanitizer that will only react to a, a white hand. So if you if you put your hand under it and it's a black hand, it doesn't see your hand. But if you put your white hand under it, it sees your hand. So these everything that we think is objective is designed by someone, and that that bias is built in. You know, everything and Siri and Alexa and and how how kids speak to Alexa and how they speak differently to a male voice on their automated play system. You know, tech is really an important part of endorsing biases it's it's fascinating but it is that and 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 you see a lot around ethnicity a lot around so so for example all this facial recognition stuff for example doesn't really recognize trans people or or boyish lesbians because they think you're a man so my facial recognition always thinks i'm a bloke because they can't understand why i've not got longer hair you were with stonewall for 14 years weren't you mm-hmm. yeah. um and over the, that period of time, you really changed the way that Stonewall operated, especially around trans rights. Mm. Um, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so I started at Stonewall in 2005 uh, when there was a very capable CEO, Ben Summerskill, who who took Stonewall on its own 360 revolution that, that we, we turned into a very professional organisation where we worked a lot with with big companies and schools and influencers and you know if you if you were gay and in the civil service we certainly knew about you and 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 we learned to influence in different ways through that lens and I think that when I took over as CEO in 2014 I wanted to nudge it onto the next stage which is how do we ensure that that a a gay rights movement is not just for those who are the acceptable face of gay, um, and I and I can understand the necessity for that acceptable face. One of my favourite quotes is Virginia Woolf: "Nothing was simply one thing." And the, the campaigning spirit between 2005 and 2014 overly relied on binaries. 
you know, you know, you 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 are um, pro God, therefore you are anti gay. You are um, gay, but you want to get married and have children and pay your taxes. You are probably white. You are nice, nice gay. Um, you know, overly not too butch, not too camp, not too not too uncomfortable. And I get it. That's why we've got the greatest legal protections in the world for lesbian, gay, and bi people. But of course, that movement didn't include trans people and trans issues are more complicated, more varied, more interesting in some ways and more controversial in some ways. Although I personally don't see why they should be. And I think we were a little too late. I think we should have probably brought trans into Stonewall in around 2008. But instead, it was kind of 2016 before that really happened. And it was almost perfect timing for what resulted in a very increasingly hostile world towards minority communities, increased polarisation, increased aggression, and the advent of social media. So that perfect storm, I'm glad Stonewall got its act together, really, so that we could be part of the fight. Gay people have been in the firing line for a long time. I think what's different now is that it's trans people in the firing line rather than the, the broader LGBT community. And that that's why it's so important to me as a lesbian and a feminist to centre trans inclusion in my work because I have power now that I, I didn't have. And it's, it's, it's beholden. There are no trans people in the House of Lords. You know, there are no trans MPs. There are no trans mainstream journalists. There are no trans children's authors, writers who have more followers than there are trans people in the world. You know, so those of us with whatever power we have, have a a moral obligation, really, to use that power in whatever way we can to try and counteract some of that. One thing that strikes me, Ruth, before we get back to the talk that you gave at Greenbelt is that uh, I'm not sure if this was true in your um, Oxford University days when I know you were very involved in student politics, but you seem to be able to combine this this passion and this very clear-sighted commitment to a morality around what you believe to be right. And often that's to do with, in, it's always to do with inclusion, with love, with life, with light, with acceptance, with people being able to be fully who they are, no secrets. And you seem to be able to combine that with a very sort of pragmatic almost, that might not be the right word, but a very a correlating, very clear sort of strategic tactical nous. And I'm not sure that's all that common. But it is that difference between individual organisational and societal change that I'm constantly fascinated by. And to give you a very small anecdote, me and Caroline volunteer at our local food bank, right? So every Wednesday night and we're in charge of stock and, and how does how much money's coming in and all this kind of stuff. It's started running out of my church and it's great, but it's a bunch of volunteers trying to learn how to run a food bank. And we can never get enough tinned meat. And tinned meat is £2 per unit and non-meat products are £1 per unit. So my individual response is every time I go into a shop, I buy more tinned meat. And actually, the organisational response is, can we find a supplier of tinned meat? The societal response is, how do we cease the need for food banks? And the kind of keeping those three layers helps me determine my energy levels. So am I going to do invest a huge amount of energy in going around every corner shop in Bethnal Green buying up tins of meat. Actually, I'm going to try and probably find a supplier, but actually a much better use of my time is to work out how we can provide food to people on a regular basis in an affordable way. So so for me, I think it's very, very seductive and suits the the age of ego and individual to overly get invested in that individual response. Um, and, I, and I think it's about our desire to be rescuers. It's our desire to be doing, doing a good thing individually. And I think it's about understanding where can we have influence and making sure we best deploy our efforts in at the height of our influencing. And for some, that might be, I can go into a corner shop and buy you a can of meat. So that's what we ask for every Wednesday. We ask for people to come and bring some cans of meat. Um, and that's that's the that's the scope of their influence. What's the scope of my influence? Well, I've got hands on the budget, so I can find a supplier, and I'm a peer in the House of Lords. What's my scope of it? So I think it's always about understanding and seeing where is your scope of influence, and who, what can you do with that individual problem, without being seduced into what am I going to do today to make myself feel better about this problem, and but that's very difficult to maintain, like. <laughs> Because I can just go and get some meat. Um, so, you know, it's, it's how you manage all those different things. 
obviously coming to Greenbelt. Was it a bit of a bizarre experience? At one stage in the talk, you said something like, I'm, I'm not saying this is the most bizarre weekend of my life, but it certainly comes close. <laughs> can, can you remember that? Can you remember anything about your time coming to Greenbelt? I do, because um, me and Caroline hadn't been caught in for long. And I said, oh, I've, I've got this gig in um, uh, a festival. Do you want to come along? And, and you know, we're introverts and we quite like, and she was, oh, okay, yeah, well, you know, we're, we're caught in, I'll come to a festival with you. I said, oh, well, it's... Um, it's a Christian festival, actually. And she was like, come on, what are you doing? And I said, look, they've, they've booked us a luxury tent. So we, <laughs> luxury shivered. Tent. <laughs> she sh- we shivered all night in this year. And I was obviously in my kind of shirt and tie and jacket and we hadn't washed. So, so it was a kind of slightly... Um, and I hadn't really talked at that stage very openly in that way about faith on that kind of platform. You know, I think part of my my journey in that first year of CEO was was trying to find how I combine these narratives and and, and what is my my responsibility, but also what is my what's the personal cost of that, and, and you know what does that mean? And, and so all those different questions kind of coalesced around Greenbelt. And I just remember sitting in a tea tent because we don't drink alcohol, so so we were sitting in this tea tent with our hats on, and Caroline was like. <sighs> It's just as well I love you, isn't it? And uh, and she hadn't really heard me talking about faith before, so I, th- I suspect that's what I was reflecting on, and I had very bad hair. Well, should we just take a listen to what you said? Well, a little bit of what you said, and then we'll dig into some questions off the back of that. So my story, I'm 35. I came out at 14, maybe 13, certainly snogging girls at 12, but that's, not, that's part of a different journey. Um, so came out around that time and that was around the same time and I it's it's very odd talking about very personal things in this space because it's a big field but but I'll try um I was brought up Catholic went to Catholic school me and my brother both were uh received our first holy communion and our relationship with the church was as normal and as regular as our relationships with our school our relationship with our friends it was part of our fabric of our life And at that stage in adolescence where we might have drifted off, my um, aunt, who was also my godmother, died in childbirth and left three very small kids, a four-year-old, a two-year-old and a little baby. And those children went to the same Catholic school that me and my brother had gone to. And what happened was that Catholic church wrapped itself around us as a family and wrapped itself around us and our pain and the shock and the experiences that were too much for a teenager coming to terms with their sexuality. So as I read the Bible more, and I read the Bible a lot, I found a lot of God for me. There was a lot that I took from my faith. And my relationship with the Catholic Church could sometimes be described as a little childlike. It is certainly rooted in those principles of love and light and treating their neighbour as we treat each other. I believe in the one holy Catholic Church. I believe in transubstantiation. Those are all part of the fabric of my life. But as I read that Bible, nothing was discordant for me about my burgeoning loving of women. There was nothing that I read that made me go, ooh, I can't have this faith anymore. Because what I read was about Ruth and Naomi and where you go, I will go, where your people are, my people. And that's not a lesbian relationship by any stretch of the imagination, but it recognises the value that relationships between women can have. I read about Jonathan and David. I was struck by the fact that Moses got the gig because his brother wasn't very good at public speaking. That really chimed with me. Um, That's what I took from the Bible. I never took gosh, I better not be an active homosexual, otherwise I can't be a Catholic anymore. That's not how it worked for me. And every priest I met where I was talking about life and death and big issues, and by the way, I think I fancy my friend, none of them said, let's focus on your homosexuality. They all said, let's focus on the notion of light and love, God and love. Where is love? What do those three little kids need? How can you draw the strength you need to be a good godmother? to these three little children who've lost their mother. So that was the basis of my faith. I went to um, Oxford at 18 
um, but was very politically involved and very active as a student politician, so went to the local Catholic churches with local parishioners. Because the thing about Oxford, everything you do is overtly political. If I'd gone to Oxford University Catholic Society, I'd have had to be a really big, good Catholic. And I'm not a theologian. I was, however, a really good student politician. So I would go secretly to Saturday Mass and then go out on the piss like every other student. That was kind of how it worked in those days. When I left Oxford and got more and more into student politics, more and more into politics, came to Stonewall at the age of 25, faith didn't have a role in that movement or that campaign. And so I learned to suppress that side of my personality and foreground other parts. Now, one of the things we know at Stonewall is that secrets are absolutely toxic. Not being able to be yourself with your friends, your family, your parishioners, your staff, your colleagues, technically speaking, messes with your head. And so at Stonewall, what we talk very much about is about connecting your values. And we know that being LGBT leads to a decision that you make to be yourself, even though you risk losing your friends, your family, your parish, your congregation. You risk everything in order to be yourself. And I wasn't risking everything to be myself in terms of my faith. It was a very contradictory time for me. And then one night I was on the press phone. So the press phone goes to different people. And I'd, I was, it was a Sunday morning. I was sleepy. Phone rang. Uh, they're closing the Catholic masses. What does Stonewall think about that? And I said, it's terrible that the Soho masses are going. It's really important that Catholics have a place to go where they can be themselves. And they said, well, how would you know that? And I said, well, I'm a Catholic and I believe it. Right. Deputy Chief Executive of Stonewall, open Catholic, off we go. And I was like, Christ, I'm not even a very good Catholic. I don't even know how to do this. I don't know it. I don't know it well enough to suddenly be thrust into this role as an open Catholic gay rights campaigner. And so I ummed and ahed a bit with it. But as I, when I became Chief Executive, it was the thing that the independent lived with, and it's more and more what people talk to me about. So in a kind of here-I-am-Lord moment, I felt I had a responsibility as Chief Executive to be conscious and congruent with my faith and make that part of, an explicit part of, the way in which I lead and the way in which I work with Stonewall. So Stonewall's at an interesting point. Half our people, mainly the people who donate to us, so Stonewall takes no government money. Stonewall receives all its funding from people who give us £10 a month, £20 a month. Those people said, but it's all right now. I'm all right now. I can get married. I've got dissolved my civil partnership already. I'm already on to my second one. That's how equal we are. I don't need Stonewall anymore. And what we've had to say is, well... You still don't feel safe on the night bus. Well done for being rich enough to get an Addison Lee. You still wouldn't feel safe enough if you worked on zero-hour contracts in the middle of nowhere. You still wouldn't be safe enough if you're from a black and minority ethnic background or you're disabled or you're transitioning in your gender. All the things that make us the beautiful, wonderful LGBT community, you are only probably equal now if you're what we describe as a good gay. And a good gay is someone who's not too camp, um, certainly not too butch if you're a lesbian. Normal, normal, normal. And what Stonewall had to acknowledge is that we are a beautiful, wonderful, diverse, complex community. And actually, if we look at where oppression is coming from, faith communities are both a source of love and light for LGBT people, but also a source of oppression, discrimination, hurt, pain, and heightened anxiety about who we are and what we do. And so Stonewall took the decision that we had to play a part in looking at faith communities and LGBT identity. And I took the very serious decision that I had to be part of that publicly too. So this is where we've got to. Stonewall is now in a place where we are looking very strategically about how we can help faith communities get their head around the LGBT thing. We are very aware that there is an obsession about LGBT issues from faith leaders that is not necessarily reflected in congregations up and down the country. There seems to be a real preoccupation with willies in the bishops and the synod that just doesn't translate into lived experience. And I go to my local Catholic church in Brixton and 
there is nothing. There is no discussion about sexual orientation. And the thing about Catholics, we don't talk about our sin openly anyway. We're all very coy about our privacy. We come together and we pray. This preoccupation with sexual orientation and gender identity is generally positioned with the hierarchy. So we have to look about how we can amplify the voices of people of faith, people of Christian faith, who are heterosexual and who are LGBT. And Stonewall is in the business of empowering individuals to start telling their stories. We run role model programs, leadership programs, allies programs, bring you together for a day to talk about your story, your truth. And talk about the fact that my faith is important to me and it is important to me for this reason and it is congruent with my sexual orientation and gender identity because that is who I am and God made me in this way. You were on fire that day. I was. I don't normally listen to myself back, you know. Oh, you I don't sure? Think it I was ever a very have. good talk. Thanks. <laughs> I don't normally listen. Um, so, yeah. Gosh, I was young, wasn't I? I'm more jaded now. <laughs> Aren't we all? I think you, you said at one point about enabling people to tell their stories and in recent months you've been involved in curating a brand new book that's out called queer prophets which i guess in some senses enables people from different religious contexts and upbringings to tell their stories about how they have or haven't managed to reconcile those religious contexts with their sense of their own identity as a person as a sexual person I think that one of the reviews I read said that perhaps the telling of these stories is what will finally overcome the institutionalized barriers that there are to LGBT people being able to be themselves within religious institutions. I don't know. Can you say anything about that? I think what we what we have in the book of Queer Prophets is a very beautiful depiction of very different people's relationship with faith. And even those who say, I have no faith, that is a conscious decision of an engagement with faith. You know, so, so this notion that, that faith is irrelevant to LGBT people is, is an utter misnomer. We are engaging with the subject of faith all the time and in all sorts of ways, sometimes with um, deeply disappointing and tragic outcomes, sometimes with amazing and wonderful outcomes. I mean, I'd, I would love to think that this might be the thing that, that nudges. I think what I hope it does is give um, those who who are of faith and wish they could do more some insight into what that might look like. And I, I do think improved empathy helps. I was editing it actually at the same time that uh, the Church of England came out with their guidance about what opposite sex couples should do if they had a civil partnership which basically boiled down to don't have sex and it was such it was such a, such a mealy-mouthed kind of contorted analysis of relationships with no no humanity no warmth no love and it was all because well we better be consistent about what we said about civil partnerships and when the discussions were happening about whether if with the introduction of same-sex marriage civil partnerships could be dropped there were, of course, lots of LGBT people who said, no, no, we really value our civil partnerships. But, of course, the greatest defenders of civil partnerships were the Church of England because the ch- civil partnerships gave um, clergy one way of having their relationship acknowledged as long as they promised never to have sex. So when civil partnerships were extended to opposite sex couples, it was like, well, OK, you can have one, but don't have sex. It was like, what are you doing? What are you doing? This is so far removed from any kind of spirituality relationship with god with love with light with jesus with you know it's it's so removed that every time you speak you are making it worse and and what queer prophet shows is just these people who are finding god despite that um and and i think what it what it said to me is there are lgbt people of faith who are far more able to to speak with with grace about their faith because they haven't come to it through the, the through the, the mechanisms of the organised church, and, and therefore there's something for all of us in there. And Ruth, why why do you think that the church and religious institutions are still so obsessed with people's sex lives and people's love lives? I, I sometimes think it's a proxy for a bigger discussion that can't be had. So I sometimes wonder whether the conversation that needs to be had is what is the relevance of the Church of England in uh, 21st century world 
um, where's a, a move away from colonialism, a move away from you know what you, I think I think there are some big you know what is the role of Africa in this? What is and 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 kind of shying away from that question, it is much easier to have a kind of ongoing. Unresolvable discussion about about sex and sexuality. What I don't understand is why the same generosity of spirit that was applied to things like women bishops cannot be applied to LGBT people. You know, the, the approach to women bishops was: we get it if you don't get it, you don't have to be involved, but those who do can. Right. So, so you know, that we we have that we have the mechanisms to to find ways through these these seemingly intractable problems, but there's something quite um, seductive about being stuck. There's something very certain about staying stuck, and and I think for those who are perpetuating that stuckness, the collateral is is irrelevant. Um, so who gets caught up in that is in that theoretical pontificating about about what is allowed and what isn't. It's very easy to ignore the long term consequences on the individual and on society. And, you know, and there's kids running the food bank. There's kids who are hungry. There's kids who can't go to school because they haven't got shoes. There's plenty for our Christian communities and leaders to worry about. They don't need to worry about who I love and how I love them. <laughs> like, you know. So it's it's a source of deep sadness for me. I think there's one um, comment that stood out in Jeanette Winterson's chapter in Queer Prophets is she said she uh, something like she can't have anything to do with the father of all binaries um, mm. when she thinks about God. And I think that perhaps there's a little bit of that. This idea of who's in, who's out, who's right, who's wrong is still very seductive. This idea that things need to be very clear cut, simple, um, definable, um, neat, normal. But life just isn't like that, is it? Yes. No. And I think that kept, that's become more clear during COVID with, with more masses taking place around kitchen tables with shonky camera work. And, you, you know, the, what, what, is, what does this boil down to? You know, what, what do our faith boil down to when you strip away through necessity and circumstance? What is it that remains? And it is 12 people or 12,000 people on a Zoom call listening to someone say the creed. And I, I no more know what's going on in those 19 bedrooms as they know what's going on in mine. And all we can try and do is live our best life and understand that that's not always possible. You know, so, so there has to be some human compassion in a world that is increasingly hard and cruel. And, you know, we are going to see the greatest level of unemployment that this country has seen since the post-Second World War, poverty, the generational gap that's going to be inflicted on kids who've not been able to go to school for the last 12 weeks. The problems we are facing are immense. And if there was if there was ever a need for a coherent and compassionate and kind church faith community, now is that moment. Do you think things are improving? Is there hope for the future? Always, yes. And and things things are you know, HarperCollins published this book, whereas it would have been it would have been an online blog somewhere <laughs> five years ago. You know, there, there is increasing interest. And, and I think, you know, we have to acknowledge the Black Lives Matter movement as, as not a sign that um, I, in, in my in my memory, there have been more Black Lives Matter movements. And every time they have uh, failed to convince those in power to do anything differently something different has happened this time and whereas i think there's been a significant outpouring of white guilt but not much white action something is a bit different this time and i my heart breaks for the people of color who have to relentlessly continue to tell their story and explain and solve and help and provide and reassure and make every sure everybody's very comfortable with what they're saying that's an ongoing trauma for them I, th- I think something's happening in that white people are starting possibly to understand that they might have to do some work themselves, not just wait for it to be done to them. And I, th- I think that that capacity for self-reflection around inclusion will only have a positive output on things like church communities. You know, I remember a similar moment when I went to church and to my current church and, and sister sister judith was was doing the sermon and she said you know who are our prophets lgbt people are our prophets today and i was like oh my god she just said lgbt she just said lgbt from a pulpit and and it was a woman and it was so and it was just transformative and it doesn't take much to transform 
a culture, a space. You know, you don't need to be an expert on Foucault. So, so I'm hoping that Black Lives Matter has given people permission to realise they have power to influence through the smallest of gestures, what we call it, deeds and words, little big things. Little big things can be really transformative. Yeah, I really like that because those are two small, small gestures that mean so much for you, but all of us could do similar things so easily. It really, and I think people get, get stuck so people people go from it's nothing to do with so so people go from hostility um and that's one journey people go from it's nothing to do with me i don't care what you you are i just treat everybody equally and that that's the harder one to nudge because actually society doesn't treat us all equally and therefore treating us all the same isn't isn't right either so when i'm when I'm in church, I've got power, right? So, uh, so when someone comes in who is young and a person of colour, working shift work, I have the power there to make that person feel welcome and included. And we all have that responsibility on ourselves and, and how we can be alert to what somebody might need. Someone comes in with their four kids and they're knackered and they haven't slept for three weeks. Well, let me go and take those two to Sunday school and, and give you a bit of peace. You know, that's all being alert. That's, a, that's so Christian. <laughs> like That's kind of like rule 101 of Christianity, which is what does your neighbour need? Can you look out for them? It's not a complex edit. So for LGBT people, it's the same principle. What does that person need and can you give it to them? Is is if, if we could just keep that in our heads, we'd all do much better, I think. Well, Ruth, thank you so, so much for your time. You're um, very welcome. It's been wonderful speaking with you and we wish you all the best with deeds and words and a return to the, the Lords if that happens physically um, and all that you have to do there. One thing I was wondering is when you're online shopping and they ask you for your name, do you put in Baroness Ruth Hunter, Bethnal Green? No. I, I think no. I would. Yeah, but Caroline would take the mick out of me so badly. <laughs> if anything arrived at this house addressed to Lady, and it wouldn't be Baroness, it would be Lady, because that's what's always in the drop down menu. If anything arrived at this house addressed to Lady Ruth Hunt, I swear I would not hear the last of it. From <laughs> Caroline, who doesn't believe in a second chamber and doesn't believe in deference and thinks the whole thing is a is a she's very proud of me but also rolls her eyes quite a lot i would not get away with it so that was an incredible conversation yeah wonderful so much to get into i think something that really came out to me strongly in what ruth was saying and around her bravery of trying to connect her faith and her Catholicism with her work campaigning and advocating for LGBT rights at Stonewall is that the church as an institution, whether it's the Church of England, the Roman Catholic Church, whatever, it does seem to really overcomplicate things. And I don't know, perhaps that is the nature of institutions. Whereas really, at its root, any religion is pretty much about loving one another and loving God. Simple. Simples. I mean, I love theology, don't get me wrong. I love reading theology, I study theology, and I love all of those complex and philosophical notions about who God is, who we are, who we are in God, who we are in relationship to the planet. You know, all, I love all that sort of philosophizing as an idea, but unless that informs a very, very direct and simple practice of gentleness, generosity, love, resistance, solidarity, then... For me, it's worthless. She mentioned something about there's a bigger question there. When I, when I asked her about why do you think the church is so obsessed with people's sex lives still, she said that she thinks it's ignoring a bigger question. What, what, what's that about? It's very easy to focus your energy and your attention around something which in a way is like a scapegoat and a side issue because in a way it's the quote unquote sort of easier thing to do. And she talks about it being quite seductive to be stuck, to keep on circling around the same sort of conversation. It's a bit like that phrase, you know, fiddling while Rome burns. It's like people putting the deck chairs out on the Titanic as it went down. Mm. In other words, what we tend to do as humans, whether religious or not, or in institutions particularly, is we tend to avoid the the important issue, the elephant in the room, and get completely obsessed with all the minutiae. You know, perhaps the church almost 
likes in a way to keep on about human sexuality because it avoids them having to really have much bigger conversations about what's the point of the church or what can the church be today given the fact that there are more and more people who are living precarious lives after this pandemic than ever what should the church really be doing should it really just be circling around this endless conversation on human sexuality and love human love yeah that's what i don't get yeah i think ruth was she was so gentle and mild-mannered but i think deep down she's pretty cross as a person of faith she said you know this isn't rocket science this is just the basics you know treat other people as you would want to be treated look out for one another meet one another's needs that is at the root of any practice of faith yeah and what are those needs you know that's something for people to work out on their own and it's going to be different for everybody and it, it kind of comes back to what we've talked about in previous podcasts about going one step further for people so if in your church community you feel that they're not accepting of lgbt plus communities then going one step further to stand up for those people that's loving thy neighbour. That's helping other people, I think. That goes right the way back to episode one and, and Roman talking to us about empathy being not just sympathy, but going that one step further, as you say. And that's where change happens, I guess. That's where change is made, both in your life and in the life and in the lives of those you're wanting to stand with and support. And it makes sense as well, because a lot of times we leave the people up to do that fighting are the people that are normally being oppressed by that situation. And I think this is something that's come out really clearly with the Black Lives Matter campaign this time is don't come to black people and ask them what to do. This is your society. It's time for you to stand up now. You do the learning, you do the thinking and you stand up. And it makes sense because any time that anybody has been oppressed and whether that's, you know, there's varying scales of how that can happen. Some of it can be very physically abusive, mentally abusive. Any time that person needs to stand up against that oppression again, it's triggering. It's hard for them to do. It's almost making people relive that moment again. And so the best thing that you can do, the most Christian thing you could do is to be that person standing up. Yeah, I think Ruth described it as it's like an ongoing trauma. If you're expected to continually do that work, you're having to live through that trauma over and over again. And that just is just not fair. That's not us being loving or kind. One thing that I was really impressed among many other things with Ruth is she's very, very clear about the different areas of her life where she can have an impact and where she can make a difference. Did that strike you? Because for me, I thought, wow, I need to do some of that thinking for myself. Yeah. And I loved how simply she put it in that story about her at the food bank that you have the individual response which was to go and buy meat and then you have the organizational response which is to try and find a meat supplier and then you have societal response which is to try and feed people and stop them needing to use food banks that's brilliant i really have to train myself to be that logical and not emotional about situations but hearing stuff like that gives me a very clear way forward of trying to assess where I can be helpful. I think I've completely forgotten how to do that sort of self-reflection where I think, you know, what is it that I can do? Where can I have influence? I think I've forgotten that. And I need to get back into that and do some work, I think. You know, Ruth's response now with the influence that she has around her job will always be a kind of more societal response. And your role at Greenbelt as well, you have a response around that, which is organisational and almost societal. Don't beat yourself up, Paul. At the end of the day, I think that Ruth's analogy reminded me that there's always space and time for us to do some self-reflection and look at our motivations, look at what we're doing. It's hard, though, sometimes, isn't it? Because that self-reflection means that you have to look at yourself and go, yeah, you could be better. <laughs> I know that's something that I faced, especially this time with the Black Lives Matter campaign. I think that I've done my bit. And then all of a sudden I was faced with having to really reflect that I haven't done enough. I don't think that any of us have done enough because if we had been doing enough, then it wouldn't be still an issue. We're all humans, aren't we, at the end of the day? There's going to be a degree of self-interest and ego in almost everything that we do and think about, I guess. It's just learning, as you say, to clock that and recognise it. 
and not let it sort of control us. Do you have people around you that can clock it for you? Chantal is an absolutely fabulous clocker. (laughs) (laughs) She's absolutely merciless. That's great. (laughs) How about you? Yeah, I think my family are a good clocker. (laughs) Is this a word, clocker? (laughs) It should be. Who's your clocker? Everyone needs a clocker. I remember the time as an and it happened as an adult naively and a lot of that shows my own privilege in this situation but I I remember the time when I realized that being gay or being LGBT plus in this society was still a problem and that was when I came to work for Greenbelt weirdly because I grew up in a very artistic drama group. So there was always a lot of openly gay people around me. And then I went to this really odd creative university on top of a hill in the middle of Devon where you could literally be whoever and whatever you want. Somebody even after leaving my university came the first person to be legally recognised as a cyborg. (laughs) You could be... Somebody lived in a box for three months. Somebody went and chased rainbows for three months. Like, you could be whatever you wanted to be and you could wear whatever you wanted to be and you could love whoever you wanted to. And um, when I came to work for Greenbelt for the first time, I remember wanting this catering company who were all drag queens that used to do like serve you hot dogs and burgers and then do a little drag queen show and I was like that's brilliant I can't remember a festival where I haven't seen drag queens doing that (laughs) and then I found out that Greenbelt had never had a drag queen to the festival and then I started to dig deeper and see that it was a problem and then it highlighted the fact that I'd been naive to the fact that this is still a problem in our society but in my lovely little mind the world was blissful and it was great. So I still have those two opposing views that I could have a look at. And that, you know, I've experienced what I thought was complete acceptance. And then I experienced something that was very different. You've been a fantastic ally and champion to LGBT people since you've been at Greenbelt. And that's probably because of this sort of weird juxtaposition that you came from one world into another. Yeah, I think it was a bit of a shock to the system and I didn't understand it and I still don't understand it. To me, it seems so trivial because to me, it seems like this is about love and love is at the centre of any religious or community group. It's all about love. And so why are we bothering still harping on about who people should love? I think Ruth said it when there is so many other things in this world that we could be focused on because there's a lot of problems. We have this major inequality. People are starving. People are homeless. But yet we're worried about who you're holding hands with and who you're sleeping next to at night. Like, why? Yeah, it's interesting that you had that experience when you came to Greenbelt and perhaps you should have played your cards a little bit more carefully and not gone straight for drag queens. Perhaps you should have built up towards, <laughs> you know, you didn't get your tactics quite right there. You, you came in all guns blazing with drag queens and everyone, what? what? Hold on. So as long as I can remember coming to Greenbelt, there has always been safe space meetings and opportunities for LGBT people to meet. And then what's happened over the years sounds really silly to say it now. But if you think back to the 1980s, you know, even in wider culture, even in wider society, to provide gay people with a space and affirmation and a chance to be exactly who they are, no secrets, no pretending, no closets, that in itself was quite... A revolutionary thing at the time. It took Greenbelt, I guess, a long time then to start to mainstream the concerns of and the um, the fantastic, prophetic, creative imagination of LGBT people within the broader program. And I think that that's what's happened over the last 10, 15, 20 years. I think it's been amazing. I think it's transformed the festival. And I'm proud now that a lot of people who struggle to connect their sort of Christianity or their faith with their sexual identity because of the messages that they're getting in their own settings call Greenbelt their home where they feel that those two things can belong together. And I'm proud of that, I guess. Still a lot of work to do, but... That's kind of bittersweet, isn't it? Because that's lovely that we can provide a home, but that home is for four days of the year. And it's sad that those four days are when people can actually maybe be completely themselves and comfortable with themselves. (laughs) 
I think one of the teams that we've enjoyed working with loads at the festival over the last few years because of the energy and the creativity they bring, one of our volunteer teams is out at Greenbelt. I know you've particularly enjoyed uh, working with them, Catherine. Yeah, I love them. And they're a volunteer group and they're there on site to answer questions, to signpost people to any sort of LGBT plus resources or community groups or more information. Just being there as a bit of a resource, really. Yeah, they're great. And uh, what about when Lucy Spragan came to headline a couple of years ago? She was just bowled over, wasn't she? Yeah, Lucy Spragan, she was backstage and the Out at Greenbelt sign was just kind of floating over the top of the backstage compound, which she saw because it's got the rainbow flag. And so she went out there and the Out team normally signposts to any LGBT plus programming that we have over site on that day. And they'd kind of pointed towards Lucy Spragan, but they'd spelled her name wrong. And so she went in there and she was like, you spelled my name wrong. (laughs) What about that bit where Ruth says that Microsoft Teams pick up male voices? And that there's kind of this bias built into the tech because this tech was built by somebody. I shouldn't be surprised anymore. I'm kind of annoyed that I'm still surprised by this stuff. You and I have been trying to get a writer and researcher called Caroline Criado Perez to the festival for the last couple of years. And she's written a book all about that, about the way that life is designed, that technology is designed around us is deeply, deeply, deeply gendered biased. Not even technology, things like seatbelts. Seatbelts, that's what I mean. Well, that's a technology of sort. That I meant to include that, yeah. Oh, I guess. Yeah, seatbelts aren't designed for the female frame. So more women die in car accidents as a result of that than men. Insane. I think we need to do something at Greenbelt about that, do you? Yeah, I think that would be really interesting. And it's needed because I, until we were talking about bringing that author to the festival this year, I didn't even think about the fact that things have a bias. Having spent most of my last four months on Zoom and Teams, I think she's absolutely right with that. Do you, that it's picking up male voices? Yeah, I mean, it's a real niche little example, but we've discovered that you have to go into the back end of Zoom, into the detailed settings to switch off quite a bunch of stuff in order for the sound to start coming through properly. In the early days, we were doing Martin Joseph's The Rising on Zoom. If you just go into Zoom and try and play music, it squashes everything too tight. And what was coming through, you can hardly hear Martin's guitar. And all it was was him bellowing his vocals. Doesn't even pick up a genderless guitar. we get people who accuse Greenbelt of just being an echo chamber and just sort of like reinforcing its own liberal, progressive, lovey-dovey, warm, inclusive beliefs. Sounds wonderful. Yeah, it does sound good, (laughs) doesn't it? (laughs) But occasionally I get really challenged about that. But I was thinking, oh no, we need to bring in... I think we both do, don't we? We think, who could we really bring in on the programme who would really confront that complacency and really say some difficult things to us or do perform something really difficult for us to come to terms with that would help us have those difficult conversations that perhaps aren't happening in society because everyone is in tribes and factionalised. The grey area. Yeah, yeah. An earlier rising that we did in the summer was with an artist called Chris Matthews, who uh, Martin Joseph introduced us to. And uh, she is uh, a woman of colour, a lesbian, but her mum is a preacher, a Baptist preacher in the state. So she's got it all going on. She, she describes herself as a poster child for intersectionality, which I think is a really nice description. But what she says is when she played for us, she'd just come off the back of a series of dates where she was performing digitally in different cities around the US. And she said, yeah, you know, I get the same sort of crowd in. They're the people who believe in me. They're people who believe the same things that I do. She said, but at the end of the day, there's something really nice in preaching to the choir if it helps the choir sing louder. That's great. Because sometimes people say, you know, why Greenbelt? Why do you sort of like seem to be reinforcing a certain stance or point of view? I say that to you all the time as well. Just like you do. We've had this conversation many a time where I'm like, you know, we're having these debates. You need to have a look at getting in opposing voices. Yeah. And we've had really interesting conversations about that. But yeah, I like that. I like that preaching to the choir if it makes the choir sing louder. That makes a lot of sense. I think that's really helped me because I've tried to articulate it. I really value your challenge and it's it's the right and it's a good challenge. And we do need to always be open to that and to doing more and to inviting people in. But at the end of the day, we exist as part of a wider culture. And 
if part of what that four days does is to give people that encouragement and that inspiration to go out and fight the good fight and to stand up and be counted and stand in solidarity with those who are struggling and those who are suffering, then part of me doesn't mind the fact if we're accused of just being an echo chamber or preaching to the choir because I want that choir to be able to stand up and sing louder. So we'd like to say a huge thank you to Ruth Hunt. I think that, I don't know about you, Catherine, she has caused more reflection in me than perhaps any of our guests that we've had so far. Yeah, she's wonderful. And I'm really looking forward to having her at the festival with her book of Queer Prophets. Yeah, and hopefully when she comes back, she can relax and enjoy the festival more next time. We'll we'll put her in a hotel (laughs) instead of a tent. (laughs) (laughs) We do that, don't we? It's like a rites of passage. We just want to test if people are really going to get the green belt space by putting them in a tent. Yeah. Also, we we didn't really have a lot of money when she came the last time. So we were putting everybody in tents. (laughs) That was 2015 after we had almost lost the festival and we only did the festival for a certain amount of people. And we were really, oh man, those were were tough times, weren't they? Super poor. We couldn't print in colour in the office. We could only print in black and white. That's how much we stripped back everything. We couldn't order any new pens, any new pencils. Staplers were a no. (laughs) And even though they only came in once a week for like a couple of hours we also had to discontinue employing the cleaners didn't we and we had to go on a rotor ourselves to clean the office which was an old schoolroom building that we had and it needed quite a lot of cleaning because it was it was really falling down there was dust and plaster work coming on off all over the place so <laughs> those were interesting times you'd go from like negotiating with the agent of the polyphonic spree to <laughs> with the marigolds on cleaning a toilet <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we really do suffer for our art, don't we? But, you know, we don't mind because we get to make Greenbelt. <laughs> we'll do anything. Never again. No, that that was that is, you know, in our slight defence, that is one of the reasons why we had Ruth and Caroline sleeping in a tent. <laughs> in fact, at one stage they were going to be in my camper van, but we thought that was inappropriate. <laughs> Thank you to Daisy Ware Jarrett for producing us and making this all happen. And thanks to Paul Truman on our staff team as well. We'd also like to say a big thank you to Lee Baines of Lee Baines III and the Glory Fires for letting us use his amazing track, I Can Change, for the theme tune on our podcasts. And also to Kat and Josh on our Recorded Talks volunteer team for making us sound good by editing us so well. Could you give us a real sort of like whistle stop, really rapid fire potted guide to the terminology around LGBT? Should we be putting an I or a Q on the end? Should we be calling um, gay people queer or what? What is the right language? Because sometimes <laughs> people are scared to speak because they're, they're worried about getting the, the words wrong. Okay, is, so is there, are there right terms? It, it's evolving all the time because society evolves all the time and everybody's online and everybody's finding different ways to describe how they feel. So the first thing is you are never going to know the whole dictionary and you won't be able to keep up. So just have good intentions and don't be rude. Rule number one. Um, rule number two, only use the word queer if you're queer yourself would be my advice um, because it takes a lot you have to really know that someone gets it before they can use that term. So we're in the process of reclaiming the word queer. Lesbian um, is is used by some, um, but not all, women who are attracted to women. Gay is also a useful generic term. Um, it's bi, not bisexual. So we tend to say lesbian, gay and bi um, as a way. Trans is an umbrella term that can refer to a whole spectrum of different identities of people who are who are trans. So there are some people who are trans and they would what we call fully transition from one to another, um, and they would be trans men and trans women or men and women. 
you know, they don't need the trans descriptor. Uh, there are some people who are trans who would say that they are what's called non-binary. And that means they don't identify with either male or female. And, you know, angels are quite good at being non-binary. We've had quite a lot of non-binary identities through our times. So that's not a new phenomenon. And there's lots of different ways of expressing one's gender in that spectrum. That, that can be used as trans. I refers to intersex, and not everybody who's intersex would necessarily consider themselves part of the LGBT community. So intersex is often a medical condition, and when you're born, it's when there are things that are that are um, unaligned, and doctors often make decisions at that moment as to whether you're a boy or a girl, and give you surgery, leading to significant lifetimes of distress. So some I communities consider themselves part of the trans community but not all do uh, but if you talk about lgbt plus communities that's the best way and most inclusive way to talk and i say communities because the notion of an lgbt community is a fallacy in the same way we have faith communities christian communities there's not one christian community um, so so communities is a useful a useful way and lgbt plus is, is a good fail-safe way of doing it. and you can't ban conversion therapy you can't ban it. You either. can't because there's no regulation. So there's no regulation on any therapy at the moment. So so there's no way of enforcing a regulation on that. Most of the conversion therapies that take place are in unregulated, unofficial settings. And I think they should constitute a hate crime. You shouldn't need to classify that as therapy in order to ban it. If someone is performing a ritual over you that lasts seven hours in order to beat the devils out of you because you're gay, that is a hate crime and should be recorded as such. And that is a very um, ruse insight into what I think should happen, and it won't. And I'll spend a long time trying to work out how to ban conversion therapy and realise they can't. 